0: Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Psych Essentials.
0: Hey, if we had
1: a radio show, what do you think our jingle would be? Maybe like a James and Lindsay in the morning. That's a community shout out.
0: Wait, so are you saying we're not broadcasting live? That's news to me.
1: We are not broadcasting live. And wait, why are we doing this at four in the morning?
0: All good questions.
1: Well, like any good drive time radio, we are taking listener requests today for our first ever all requests show.
0: That's right, so you've been sending in requests via email, Facebook, and Twitter, and we're here to answer some of them.
1: We have two episodes lined up, and we're going to get to a bunch of questions, but in the meanwhile, I have my soundboard plugged in, and we are ready to go.
0: Uh Uh-oh, so let's get started.
1: Okay, let's get started. One listener wrote in and said, can you talk more about designer drugs? Now, that's a good question. Earlier, we talked about lots of substances of abuse back in our Desert Sands era. Yeah,
0: we talked about cocaine, amphetamines, heroin.
1: Yeah. And so this question is about designer drugs, or sometimes they're called synthetic drugs. And this is not designer like Mark by Mark Jacobs. Oh, bummer. Different designer. And also on the synthetic front, I mean, a lot of drugs are synthesized, like they're made pharmaceutical companies. But I think here specifically, we're talking about substances of abuse that are manufactured or synthesized. They're often really similar to other substances with a chemical structure that's changed just slightly to kind of avoid some of the restrictions around what's legal and what's not. A lot of them are similar to drugs like hallucinogens or opioids.
0: So what's some examples of synthetic drugs?
1: Yeah, so there are two that come to mind. One are synthetic stimulants, and the other are synthetic cannabinoids. Synthetic stimulants are made from phenylethylamines, including synthetic cathinones or synthetic hallucinogens, and you might be familiar with a category called bath salts.
0: I have indeed heard of bath salts.
1: Yeah, and then synthetic cannabinoids mimic the delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, which is a psychoactive part of marijuana. And the common synthetic cannabinoid, you might have heard of would be called K2 or Spice.
0: You know, I'm curious. Can you tell us a little bit more about bath salts?
1: Yeah. So just to be clear, and this was a misconception I had, but these are not bath salts that you put in a bathtub for fizzing. Ah. Really different. Different. I thought maybe if you like ingested them some weird way, it would like make you feel, but it would just make you bubble. So no, these bath salts are synthetic drugs. So it's a drug that's manufactured and it acts a lot like a stimulant. So we previously talked about stimulants like cocaine and amphetamines. We also talked about hallucinogens like LSD. They're similar, but they're just slightly modified from what we'd call like Schedule 1 or controlled substances. So here in the U.S., we, we control our substances with these schedules. So a scheduled 1 substance would be something really restricted like heroin or LSD.
0: How are bath salts used? Is it IV? Is it snorted?
1: Bath salts can be used in a few different ways. You can inhale them, you can mix them with water, they'll dissolve, and then you can inject them. They're not FDA approved, there's no medical use for them, whereas some substances also have a medical use the effects are generally similar to other stimulants like cocaine or amphetamines where we talked about things like where they'll increase your heart rate and your blood pressure or you can start to hallucinate or see things that aren't there, feel more paranoid. If that were to happen, the management would be to reduce those types of symptoms. And that would be like controlling someone's heart rate, helping them be less agitated. And sometimes you can even hospitalize folks.
0: Why would they need to be hospitalized?
1: Um, People who go into kidney failure or liver failure needing more support. That has been seen with bath salts. So we talked first about bath salts and the other synthetic category was synthetic cannabinoids. Now this is a big family of chemically similar structures that mimic the THC component of marijuana. These are usually smoked. You can see with this someone's heart rate going up, blood pressure going up, seeming more paranoid or agitated being more irritable, confused, drowsy. Sometimes people can have electrolyte abnormalities. People can have seizures. Severe side effects would include also things like kidney failure, as well as cardiovascular or nervous system insults. And these might be things that you would hospitalize them for.
0: So are these drugs illegal?
1: Well, both of them are not globally illegal in the United States as of right now. Although some states and counties have introduced laws that prohibit people from using them, there's just a variety of a whole different substances that people have slightly engineered. The U.S. government in their scheduling laws says this specific molecule is heroin and that drug is illegal. Mm. But if you make slight modifications, it's not quite that. And so it wouldn't necessarily be illegal unless your local laws vary. I see as a result, sometimes they're sold in stores in bags. They'll be called like potpourri or incense and they're noted not for human consumption. So they're outside the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Mm -hmm. In general, they're a little bit newer and they're a little bit less well known. There aren't specific treatments that you would think of for somebody using them or abusing them. But a lot of the principles could still apply that we talked about in our last substance use episodes where you could think about sort of what medical treatments might they need in this moment And then are there counseling techniques that you might use if somebody was interested in reducing the amount that they were using? Gotcha. Topic number two.
0: All right. So topic number two is about using medications off-label. We got some questions about that. So first off, you know, what does it mean to prescribe something off-label and also like what is on-label prescribing? Yeah. So we'll try to define those terms before we dig a little bit more into this topic. Let's start with on-label prescribing. So this is prescribing FDA-approved medications that have been found to be both safe and effective for specific indications and specific populations. So these are medications that have gone through all the required phases of drug development, looking at safety and efficacy in specific patient populations, for example, adults.
1: Okay, so this is something where you might start a theoretical model like phase one and then you'd go you might try an animal model and then you would try controlled human studies and then you try larger studies.
0: Yeah, exactly like randomized control trials and then long-term studies looking at safety outcomes long-term. Okay. Yeah, so that's on-label prescribing. So in contrast... Off-label prescribing occurs when we prescribe medications for an indication that has not received FDA approval. So example, we're using quetiapine for sleep. That does not, Seroquel does not have an FDA indication for sleep, and yet this is something that you will commonly see done.
1: Okay, and just clarify, an indication means a reason for using something that is specifically set forth.
0: Exactly. So that's one example of off-label prescribing. Another example is prescribing medications for a specific population that doesn't have FDA approval. So this particular patient population wasn't studied in the original studies that were submitted to the FDA. So for example, a lot of medications used in pregnancy weren't studied with a pregnant population receiving FDA approval. They're just used off-label. Okay. So... A last reason, or a last example of off-label prescribing is prescribing medications using a specific dose or a dose formulation that doesn't have FDA approval. So for example, if you wanted to use um, doses of an antidepressant that are beyond the FDA max, that is using something off-label. Okay. So basically, once the FDA has approved new medications for on-label prescribing, the FDA doesn't limit or control how medications are used once they're on the market. And so that's how off-label prescribing typically happens.
1: So the FDA just says, okay, we've approved this medicine, but there's no sort of control over what...
0: What happens afterwards, basically.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that's the cow. Why does off-label prescribing happen?
0: Yeah, you know, there's lots of reasons, a lot of good reasons why people might prescribe off-label. So um, a medication might not have been studied or approved for certain populations, but it it might be shown to be of of benefit, just clinically speaking. So there are many medications that are used for children or older patients or even pregnant patients that are used off-label. Another reason why someone might use a medication off-label is because sometimes if... One medication from a class of drugs gets FDA approval for a certain indication. Doctors commonly use medications from that same class to treat the condition without specific FDA approval. So an example of this is using SSRIs to treat PTSD. Technically, paroxetine and sertraline are the only two FDA-approved antidepressants to treat PTSD. They're the only two that have been studied and gone through the full FDA approval process. But practically speaking, clinicians will use any SSRI because they all have been shown to effectively treat PTSD.
1: Not in studies, but...
0: Not for the FDA-approved studies, Okay, those randomized control trials.
1: And I bet those are expensive to do.
0: Those are indeed expensive to do, which is why a lot of these medications don't necessarily have FDA approval for things.
1: And I imagine, too, as long as we're sort of getting into the weeds of FDA approval, if you were a different, if a competing medication like... You know, if you weren't sertraline, but you were fluoxetine, you would have to spend a lot of money to go through this whole trial to get it approved. Mm-hmm. And then, even if it was just equivalent to sertraline, people would be like, "Oh, well, I could use either of these." Exactly. It would be hard to prove that you're so much better that you would. You'd have to have a lot of confidence. That yeah, you exactly,
0: be and that's why a lot of these medications don't have all the specific FTA indications for which we typically use them in clinical practice okay so kind of along those same lines another reason why someone might prescribe off-label is if the pathophysiology of two conditions is similar someone might use a medication approved for one of these conditions with the hope that this would kind of address both things so for example PTSD and just general anxiety disorders do have certain overlapping features and so a lot of times times people might use a medication to treat both conditions even though they might not be FDA approved for both conditions okay there's lots more reasons. So um, off-label prescribing is sometimes used when other medications have failed, and this leads to innovation in clinical practice. So one example of this would be the use of IV ketamine for treatment-resistant depression. In palliative settings, when patients um, have a terminal illness, a lot of times physicians will prescribe really anything that will relieve suffering, and there's not necessarily a specific FDA indication associated with that. Physicians might prescribe off-label so that patients can access medications earlier than if they're waiting for the medication to go through the whole FDA approval process. Off-label prescribing allows physicians to adopt new practices based on emerging evidence that something might be helpful. So again, the example of IV ketamine for treatment-resistant depression might be something that kind of fits that. And then for very rare conditions where going through the full trial process for FDA approval might be hard to find off-label prescribing can potentially provide the only available treatment for these very rare conditions.
1: All right. Well, I'm sold. I'm going to start doing it left and right. Are there any reasons why I shouldn't just be prescribing things for whatever I want all the time?
0: Yes. I was going to say, hold your horses there. I mean, yes, there's a lot of reasons to prescribe off-label, but there are definitely some good reasons not to prescribe everything off-label. So... Keep in mind that off-label medications, the safety and efficacy of them for the target population and indication have not been fully evaluated the way that on-label medications have. Additionally, when newer drugs are used off-label, it can also lead to increased health care costs. This is something that you brought up previously, James, but prescribing off-label can undermine incentives for pharmaceuticals to perform rigorous studies and to seek FDA approval for secondary indications prescribing off-label can undermine the practice of evidence-based medicine just because you have less data to back up what you're doing as compared to the FDA-approved medications.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this common?
0: So yes, it is super common. So there was a study done about a decade ago in 2006 that indicated that 21% of all prescriptions were off-label. And that pattern can be higher in certain populations like uh, children or older patients. Off-label drugs can also become the predominant treatment of choice for certain conditions, for example, TCAs for neuropathic pain, but others have a lot less evidence to support their use. According to this same study, the highest rate of off label use were for anticonvulsants, in which 74% of all prescriptions were off label, antipsychotics, in which 60% were off label, and antibiotics, in which 40% were off label.
1: Hmm. Wow. That's pretty high.
0: Yeah, it, it is really high. Surprisingly so, actually.
1: Mm hmm. Are there certain groups of people that? get more medicines prescribed off-label?
0: Yeah, it's definitely more prevalent with increasing patient age, and I would also add kids and pregnant patients. You'll you'll tend to see this more often.
1: I imagine these individuals are included less often in FDA drug trials.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Okay, now what about psychiatry?
0: Psychiatric medications are commonly used off-label, and this is due to a number of issues. So there's oftentimes like diagnostic dilemmas within psychiatry, and it can be quite difficult to study these diseases. So you'll see medications used off-label due to those reasons. And in particular, off-label antipsychotic use is on the rise especially. Uh, But one thing to keep in mind is that most off-label prescribing has pretty minimal evidence to support its use, um, especially atypicals and antidepressants. So we're doing this a lot, but it it doesn't necessarily have all those like rigorous randomized controlled trials to support its use.
1: Okay, so if you're seeing an atypical antipsychotic like quetiapine or aripiprazole and it's being used for something that's not a primary psychiatric illness like schizophrenia or psychotic disorder, that may be being used off-label. Exactly. And there may not be evidence to support exactly. that. Exactly. Are there other reasons that we use as long as we're talking about atypical antipsychotics?
0: people will use it for anxiety. You'll see it used off-label for agitation and dementia. Sometimes you'll see it used off-label for eating disorders, such as anorexia nervosa. You can see it used off-label as an augmentation strategy for treatment-resistant OCD. You'll sometimes see antipsychotics used to treat certain symptoms and personality disorders. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see it used to treat psychotic symptoms in PTSD. And uh, insomnia and substance use are two other reasons. There's a lot of reasons why people will use medications off-label.
1: Yeah, that's running the gamut That's running the gamut, yeah. Okay, what about other things? You mentioned TCAs are sometimes used for pain. Yep. Do we use other things like beta blockers sometimes we use...
0: Yeah, I mean, like the FDA indication for beta blockers, i like related to, you know, CHF and, and heart conditions typically, but we use it off-label for social phobia and public speaking. Trazodone is something we commonly use for insomnia, but technically that's an off-label medication. Its original FDA indication is for depression.
1: Hmm, mm-hmm. Now, in some of these that you've mentioned, I know that there's not just not approval, but there's actually evidence to show that they Don't work for some of these conditions. Yeah, definitely. And yet they're still used. I wonder if there's a component of sometimes people use medicines off label because they've run out of other options and they feel like I just need to do something.
0: Totally. I think that's a great point. And it it speaks a little bit to, you know, when I was speaking about palliative care and terminal illness, when you're just trying to relieve suffering, I mean, even outside of the palliative settings, I think that there's oftentimes with physicians, a strong desire to relieve suffering in any way possible. And you'll try something, even if it doesn't have an FDA indication or a strong evidence base to support it.
1: Right, right. And I guess I would even step a little bit further into that and saying like, Sometimes we might be using a medicine because we're feeling a sense of pressure, mm-hmm, whether it's mm-hmm. from the other person or just from ourselves to yeah, do something Totally, and to step back and ask sort of whether that's something that we need to be
0: doing. I agree. I think that is hopefully something that I, I want to impart on our listeners is is to be thoughtful about when you are prescribing medications off-label and to really explore the reasons why you're doing this. Is it for you? Is it for the patient? And trying to sort that out for yourself.
1: Yeah. Now, would somebody be liable if they were using a medicine off-label and and like something bad happened?
0: It's a really good question. And I don't think that there are clear answers, but in general, it's important to be thoughtful when you're prescribing medications off-label. And so some questions to ask yourself before prescribing that could help to limit any liability issues is number one, does the native drug have FDA approval? So for example, using an SSRI that's not paroxetine or sertraline to treat PTSD, that would probably still be considered within the the realm of standard of care because the native drug within that category has FDA approval.
1: Okay, so when you say native, you mean another drug in the same category? Yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: The second question to ask yourself is, has the off-label use been subjected to substantial peer review? So have there been other trials or studies that have been done that have looked at this?
1: Okay. So maybe not a full clinical trial, but other people have already looked into this themselves, and there seems to be evidence that, yes, this is helpful.
0: Exactly. Okay. Third question is, is the off-label use medically necessary for treatment?
1: Does this person really need this treatment?
0: Exactly. Or are there other options that you could use that have FDA approval? Okay. Yep. And then the last question is, is the use of the medication non-experimental in other words is this a medic like have others used the medication in the same way before
1: okay so those are questions and if you can reflect on those and think yes to all of those that might make you feel more confident as you make your decision and i imagine this is something you would want to write out as you were going about exactly
0: it. the bottom line with prescribing off-label is what you know this is a common thing and Even though it's common, it's still something that really requires weighing the risks and the benefits when you're thinking about doing this for your patients. And so proceed with caution and be thoughtful and uh, consider asking a colleague or or your supervisor for their thoughts about using a specific medication off-label. And be careful. Prescribe medications only for indications that are in the best interest of the patient and based on the most credible available evidence that you have about the medication.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Is there a resource that people, if they wanted to read more about this topic in general or an article they might start with?
0: Yeah, so there's a a good article in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Stafford. It's written in 2011, and I'll include a link to it on our website. And there's also a Mayo Clinic article by Dr. Wittich. That's another really good reference. So I can also put a link to that on our website.
1: Cool. So you can check out more there. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap it up for our first listener request episode. Definitely stay tuned for the next one. In the meanwhile, you can check out our website, leave us a review, and let us know what you'd like to hear more about in the future. Our website is
0: www.psychessentials.org.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Psych Essentials. Check us out on iTunes, where you can rate, comment, and share Psych Essentials. Our music is by Javier Suarez off the album Tumbling Dishes. There's always a link on our website. Our sound effects were gratefully sourced from creative artists in the creative commons. We'll have links to all of them in our show notes as well. No people, places, or details today, but they're always changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye.